page 927. If you have a pew Bible, when you find that, I'm going to stand on the reading of God's Word. <coughs> Hebrews 11, starting in verse 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after the Israelites had marched through them for seven days, marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and flogging and further chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, people of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, on mountains, sheltering in caves and in holes in the ground. And these all, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The title of the message is, The Problem of Pain. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. You are great and wonderful. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion. Guide us tonight as we look at your word. Help us to take this to our lives and let it strengthen us. Let your spirit come. Speak through your word. Make it living and active to encourage us where we need encouragement, to strengthen us where we need strengthening, to help us where we need helping, to convict us where we need convicting. Father, let me have clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I don't want to be a hindrance in any way to what you once said tonight. Have your way in our hearts and lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, there is a sharp contrast in this passage in verses 29 through 32 and verses 33 through 35, we're given an ex- exciting picture of faith-filled believers experiencing great victories. Seas parting, walls falling down, being uniquely spared, stopping the mouths of lions, extinguishing the violence of fire, being made strong in the midst of weakness and putting armies to flight. Then in verse 35, the last of verse 35, it suddenly shifts and we're told about people being scourged, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, and, and living their lives destitute, afflicted, and tormented. As we look at these two groups of people, one who experienced great victories, one who apparently lived in great defeat and pain, it's important for us to understand this. The distinction between the two is not one group had faith and the other group fell short. Right? We, we saw in verse 2 that everybody in this list gained their approval of God by their faith. We see this repeated to us in verse 39, that these all gained approval from God through their faith. So the picture isn't between those who were faith-filled and faithful and those who were faithless and unfaithful. They are both faith-filled. They are both faithful. And yet, for some reason, God allows the people to have vastly different experiences in life. Where some saw victories, others experienced defeat. 
where some were delivered, others were killed, where some were freed, some were imprisoned. Despite their faith or despite their pain, they remain faithful to God until the end. Their living faith, which is what this chapter has all been about, enabled them to remain faithful to the end. So the key text, the key statement is a living faith enables us to push through the pain and remain faithful to the end. Then this chapter, we started it several weeks ago and we've uh, kind of had some breakups. But initially I mentioned there were four ways a living faith enabled us to push through the pain and remain faithful to the end. We talked about two last time. First, a living faith isn't surprised by pain. Right? A part of what we have to do as disciples of Jesus is face the brutal facts about pain in this life. The brutal fact is pain is a part of life. Jesus promised pain would come into our lives. Paul said that we would have to endure great pain in order to be faithful disciples of Jesus. So as disciples of Jesus, we know we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world where bad things happen. And the nature of our world guarantees pain will come into everyone's life. A living faith knows this and so is not surprised when faith or when pain comes into our life. And because a living faith knows this, it perseveres unto the end. Second, we saw a living faith looks only at Jesus. One of the worst things we could ever do in any area of our life is to compare ourselves to others. Comparing our experience to the experience of another uh, does one of two things. It either discourages us deeply because we see all the things going on in their lives we perceive are not going on in our lives. And so we live this kind of constantly, I'm not good enough, I'm not enough, I'm just kind of a miserable second class citizen in the kingdom. Or it enables us to live with a sense of sort of self-righteousness. Maybe I'm not all I should be, but I'm better than that person over there. Right. And so it either allows us to it either comparison, either defeats and discourages us or enables us to live with mediocrity and never really strive for excellence in any area of our life, but particularly in our relationship with Jesus. A living faith knows the worthlessness of comparison. And so a living faith keeps its focus on Jesus alone and follows the path he has laid out for us. And this enables us to push through the pain. And remain faithful to the end. Then tonight we have the last two. A living faith doesn't expect heaven on earth. What we see in verse 39 is interesting. All these having gained approval through their faith. But notice this last part. Did not receive what was promised. It's interesting, right? They endured terrible hardships. Primarily because of their faith and faithfulness to God. They gained God's approval through their faith, and yet they did not receive what was promised. And what was promised by God is obviously the meaning there. So what is it God promised them that they did not receive even though they had faith? And why didn't they receive it if they had faith? Well, in the Old Testament, Hebrews 11 basically follows the the span of the Old Testament And we know there were two primary promises God gave to his people in the Old Testament. The first promise was of the promised land. And the second promise was of the coming Messiah. 
While some on this list saw the promise of the promised land fulfilled, none of them saw the promise of the coming Messiah fulfilled. They lived and they died without receiving that particular promise. Now the reason they did not receive that promise was because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. But it had nothing to do with God not or God failing to keep his word. It had nothing to do with their lack of faith. Instead, the reason is it wasn't yet time for this promise to be fulfilled. God always keeps his word, but he always keeps it in the time he knows it needs to be done. Right, let me show you an example of this. Uh, turn back a few pages to Hebrews 4, verse 8. Now, in the verses going up to this in Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1, leading up to verse 8, the author has been telling his readers, God promised rest to the people of Israel. But they failed to receive the rest because of disobedience stemming from unbelief. Now, this is a reference to those who did not enter the promised land after the exodus. Now, just kind of a brief survey of the story in case you're not familiar God delivers generation out of Egypt and they leads them up to the edge of the promised land. They're all set to go in. They send spies. The spies come back and they have a unanimous report. The land is every bit as good as God had promised it would be. But, and here's where the report begins to vary. Ten of them said there are giants in the land. And the cities have walls and the armies are large and, and we are like fleas in their sight. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. If we cross over, God will let us be killed. We, we can't possibly take the promised land. And two said, no, no. If God be for us, it doesn't matter who is against us. Well, the majority of the people listened to the ten and they did not go over. And because of their disobedience... To go over, none of them ever got to go over. That entire generation had to wander in the wilderness until they all died off. Every of the people, I think it was 20 years old and upward, all of those that would have been warrior age, until all of them died off, except for Joshua and Caleb, the two good spies, they had to wander until they were all dead. Well, of course, time goes on, they all die. Joshua becomes the leader and he leads them across the, to the, out across the river into the Jordan or into the promised land. And they conquer it and they take it. Power of God is greatly at work proving all along if God before them. It didn't matter who was against them. They conquer the land. They divide the land. They dwell in cities they did not build. They you receive fruit from the vines they did not plant. All of the things God promised. And they had a measure of, of rest in that time. A rest from their labors, rest from their struggles, rest from their wars. Now, the Hebrews, the initial readers of this, knew that story well. But what, what the author goes on to say in verse 8 would have been surprising to them. For if Joshua had given them rest... He would not after have spoken of another day. He would not have spoken of another day after that. 
What Joshua did in leading them to conquer the promised land gave them a measure of rest, but it didn't give them the final rest they had been promised. In a lot of ways, entering the promised land was the beginning of their struggles. There are many battles they had to fight when they conquered them. Uh, They had to, to fight really to stay free. They had to fight to stay free of encroaching armies. They had to fight to stay free of the, the pull of their own sinful desires. And so the rest they had while they were there, it, it was not complete. It was just a partial rest and a foretaste of the rest that was ultimately to come. The author goes on in verse 9, Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So the, the rest promised in the Bible is still to come. Joshua gave a measure of it in his day, but it wasn't the fullness of it. There is still a a great day of rest to come. Now, this is significant for them because of the troubles they were having, and it's significant for us as we talk about the problem of pain. Because we know from God's Word it does speak of there being a time when there's no pain, there's no sorrows, there's no problems. There's no, nothing bad ever happens. At the same time, God's word clearly tells us in this life there are pain. In this life there are problems. In this life there are sorrows and trials and all of these issues. So the question arises, are these two teachings at odds with one another? Is there something wrong with the Bible that it promises this perfect peace and rest And at the same time, it tells us we won't experience this perfect peace and rest. It's God's word at conflict with itself. Well, no, it's not. The problem isn't with God's word. The problem is with the interpretation of God's word. There is a promise that there is a time coming when there will be no trials, sorrows, pain or problems. However, that time has not yet come. There is still yet a day of rest coming for the people of God. And as we see in verse 9, we still wait on that day. We are looking for that. Right? We know this day of rest has not come yet, even though we're in the New Testament period and we have the Spirit within us, because look at what he says in verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has also himself rested from his works as God did from his. Well, there's nothing in this life that would imagine that, that we've all rested from our works. There's no more struggles or trials or temptations or any spiritual battles or anything like that. None of us have found that time of rest. <clears throat> this time of rest isn't now in this life. It cannot be a reference to anything other than either the millennial reign of Jesus in Revelation 20 or eternity when it's ushered in in New Jerusalem comes down in Revelation 21. Now, in this life, it will be times of rest. Times where there are no problems, there are no trials, there are no sorrows, there are no pain. There's no, everything is just, and those are sweet, sweet times. Much as we like them, they are not going to be permanent times of rest. Instead, they are glimpses into the glories of the time to come. Verse 11, therefore, let's make every effort to enter to this rest so that no one will fall by following the same example disobedience. What he's saying is these times of rest in a lot of ways should just whet our appetite for the time that's coming. And we think, man, this is so good. I can't imagine how good that time is going to be. And so it it motivates us to persevere. 
the sweet times of rest we have now, they are in a lot of ways going to be the exception to the rule. But they're times of refreshment. They're times that should stir our hope and our faith and make us say, oh, man, this was great, but I cannot wait for that day. That day is coming and I will experience the fullness of this then. The Apostle Paul understood this and so he said he didn't consider the sufferings of this life compared to be able to be compared to the glories of the life to come. In this life we will struggle, toil, and labor under some heavy burdens. But at the end of it all there is a time of rest. And when this day of rest comes we will put down our burdens and we will toil no more. We will sorrow no more. We will hurt no more. We will travail no more. And we will suffer no more. But until then, we live in a world where we do toil. We do sorrow. We do hurt. We do travail. We do suffer. And we do sorrow. This world is not our home. As such, it cannot deliver the ultimate peace, happiness, joy, health, or pleasure we long for. All of that only comes from the presence of God that we are looking forward to experiencing in the days to come. Looking for a utopia in this life will always leave us disappointed. We cannot expect heaven on earth. Doing so will always leave us despairing, discouraged, and disappointed. A living faith does not expect heaven on earth And so it enables us to push through the pain and remain faithful to the end. And then lastly, a living faith knows Jesus is enough. Verse 40 of Hebrews 11, it says, Because God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They didn't receive the promise because God had something better for us and something better for them. Now, the reason they didn't receive the promise was because God did not want them to be made perfect apart from us. Now, what is this that is better, that is perfect? Well, it is, of course, Jesus. The something better given is Jesus. The something perfect is Jesus. And a living faith enables us to push through the pain because a living faith knows Jesus is enough. That if I have... Jesus, I have everything I really need in life. Disciples of Jesus in every age and every generation have pushed through pain because they knew and they believed Jesus was enough. The Apostle Paul is one of the greatest examples of this. He writes of one of his hardship experiences. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day have I spent adrift at sea. I've been on frequent journeys in danger from river, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst Often without food, in cold and exposure. So the list of hardships Paul gives just in those three verses. Five times being flogged 
39 lashes from Jewish religious leaders. Three times beaten with rods. Stoned and left for dead. Shipwrecked three times. Once he spent one during, once during that time he spent a day and a night floating in the water. He frequently traveled for the sake of the gospel and his travels were dangerous. Crossing rivers, robbers in the wilderness, his countrymen who hated him and hunted him down, Gentiles who hated him and hunted him down, dangers of the city with robbers and whatever else the city might bring, wilderness animals and whatever other things the wilderness might bring, a lack of water, a lack of food, false brothers, hard labor for the gospel, not having enough provision, exposed to the elements. That's a hard life. That is pain. Why did Paul push through all that pain and keep on preaching the gospel? Keep on preaching about Jesus. Well, it was Jesus. Paul knew Jesus was enough. If Paul had Jesus, he could endure 39 lashes. If Paul had Jesus, he could take being beaten with rods. Paul had Jesus, then when he was stoned and left for dead, he would get up and go back in the city and preach Jesus some more. If Paul had Jesus, he would just endure all of that because Jesus was worth it. Let me give you a great picture of this from Paul's life. Turn to 2 Timothy 4. Page 916 if you have a pew Bible. At my first defense, verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me. But all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. And that all the Gentiles might hear. I was rescued out of the mouth's line. The mouth's line, the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory and power forever. From a Roman prison, Paul says the Lord had delivered him from all of these things. And the Lord had delivered him from a a lion's mouth, which again, knowing the day and age in Paul's life, that's probably a very literal thing, not just a metaphor. But notice what he says. He had been rescued and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Paul was in a Roman prison waiting to find out if they were going to let him go or if they were going to kill him. Now, he anticipates being let go because he in the verses before it, he tells Timothy to come to him and bring him things. So the Lord had delivered him in the past and the Lord would deliver him in the future And yet what we know from church history and the life of Paul is he was beheaded shortly after this and he never actually left a Roman prison. So the questions we we have to wrestle with, was Paul wrong about Jesus going to deliver him? Did Jesus fail to deliver the apostle Paul? Well, the answer to both questions is no. Paul wasn't wrong and Jesus didn't fail. Because the reality is Jesus doesn't always deliver us in the ways we think he should. 
He delivers us in the ways He knows is best and the way that will bring Him the most glory. In this case, Paul was not delivered from the sword, but Paul was delivered through the sword. When Paul was beheaded, he was delivered from this life and he was brought safely into the heavenly kingdom where he was with Jesus forever. He was delivered from prison. He was delivered from being tortured. He was delivered from the thorn in the flesh. He was delivered from hunger and labor and hardship, sleepless nights, dangers in the rivers, dangers of the robbers, dangers in the city, dangers in the country. Paul was delivered from all of those things, but through the sword, not from the sword. So another question I think we could ask is, did Paul feel cheated? Paul expected to be delivered. And the implications, I think he expected to be freed from prison as he had been before. So did Paul feel cheated that that's not actually what happened? Well, if Paul's earlier testimony held true to the end, and I think it did, given the writings of 2 Timothy, then for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I don't think Paul felt cheated. At the time Paul wrote this, he was in another Roman imprisonment, his first Roman imprisonment, and he wasn't sure if he would live or if he would die. But he knew what was going to be no matter what. If he lived, he would live for Jesus. It would mean faithful service to Christ for the Philippians and others. However, if they killed him, that meant going to be with Jesus, and that was gain in Paul's mind. In fact, to Paul, he later says, just a few verses later, I'm caught between two. I don't know what I would choose. To stay and help you is is far better for you, but I, I long to go and be with Jesus because that is far better for me. So Paul did not feel Jesus cheated him. Paul did not feel Jesus let him down. Paul lived for Christ and he knew death was gain because he went to be with Christ. I'm convinced this is all of us should say that all of us should mean that in our lives. This is how we are all supposed to live as disciples of Jesus. The question, is Jesus enough for us? Is Jesus enough to enable faithful service to Him to the very end, despite the toil, the sorrow, the hurt, the travail, the suffering, the sorrow, sorrows twice, that's how bad sorrow is, we will experience In this life. Is Jesus enough. To enable us to be faithful. Through all of that. Let me give you. Another series of questions. Is Jesus enough. To enable us to remain faithful. To the end. If the path of faithfulness. Is a job harder. Than you ever expected. And isn't something you really like. 
What if faithfulness to Jesus means doing something much more difficult than we ever thought possible? We really don't enjoy. Will we remain faithful? Is Jesus enough to enable us to remain faithful? This is the case. Is Jesus enough to enable us to remain faithful to the end? If the path of faithfulness leads to conflict that goes on longer than we thought it would. I mean, conflict in this life is almost a guarantee. Now, sometimes it's just conflict, but sometimes it is because of our faithfulness to Jesus. If our faithfulness to Jesus causes conflict with our friends, with our family, with our co-workers, with those around us, will we remain faithful to Jesus? Is He enough? To lose those relationships. Is Jesus enough to enable us to remain faithful to the end. If the path of faithfulness involves sickness that lingers. What if cancer suddenly shows up and everything goes bad. If this is the case will Jesus be enough to enable us to remain faithful. Is Jesus enough To enable us to remain faithful to the end if the path of faithfulness involves suffering the pain that comes at the death of a loved one. You prayed for God to spare. If that disappointment comes into our life, will we remain faithful to Jesus? Is He enough? Is Jesus enough to remain faithful to the end even if the path of faithfulness is trying as hard as you can to to save your marriage and it crumbles anyway. Is Jesus enough to enable us to remain faithful to the end if the path of faithfulness leads to being financially ruined? We could go on and on and on. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough to enable us to remain faithful to the end regardless of of what the path of faithfulness leads us on. There's a song by a group named Cutlass called I'm Still Yours. Let me share some of the words of this song with you. The first verse says, If you washed away my vanity, if you took away my words, if all my world was swept away, would you be enough for me? Would my beating heart still sing? So if you lost it all, is Jesus enough? The second verse says, when my life is not what I expected, the plans I made have failed. When there's nothing left to steal me away, will you be enough for me? My broken heart still sing. When all we have left is Jesus, is he enough? The song ends this way. Even if you take it all, you'll never let me go. Take it all away, but I still know that I'm yours. I'm still yours. It's a challenging song. If we were to sing it tonight, could we sing it with integrity? In other words, would we sing the words and mean them from our hearts? A living faith enables us to be faithful to the end because a living faith knows Jesus is enough. Now, I don't think any of the things we talked about tonight or, or last week are easy. If they were, pain would not be a problem. And the problem of pain is something virtually every generation of disciples of Jesus have to figure out how to work through. 
And if you look at yourself in light of these things we've talked about tonight and you say, I, I'm just not there. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. And what I want to encourage you to do is to not give in to self-condemnation or guilt. And let these deficiencies kind of make you feel worthless and press on you. It's not the point of anything ever in the Bible. If there are deficiencies, if we say, no, I'm not there, then what that should do is drive us to the cross. Go isn't try harder. Do more. The harder we try, the less we, the more we fall short. The point is, go to the cross. Go to Jesus. Go to Him and cry out for more grace to help us in this time of need until we have the kind of living faith that enables us to persevere to the end. We have a promise from Hebrews that if we go boldly to the throne of grace, we are promised we will find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. This grace can transform our hearts until we genuinely live the kind of living faith we've talked about in these two passages, these two messages. And we will endure to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and wonderful. We praise you for all you've given and all you've done. Help us, Father, to have the kind of living faith we've talked about. Help us, Father, most of all, to know Jesus is enough. Lord, if we can get that one down, if your grace would work in our hearts and cause us to be settled and satisfied in Jesus, the rest of it would work its way out. And Lord, where we fall short, don't let the enemy come along and try to condemn us. Let us rather flee to the cross, cry out to Jesus, seek him. Seek more grace, to seek more help, to seek more of your Spirit's guidance to help in these sorts of things. Have your way in all of our lives and let us be faithful unto the end because we have a living faith in the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.